All right, well, in our Sunday School class, we have been studying this book by John Blanchard called Learning and Living. So as you can see from the title, it is a book that begins with learning the Christian life and what it means to be a Christian and how one becomes a Christian and then living the Christian life. And we'll be looking at that here in a minute. Um, this morning is the last chapter uh, of this, uh, the last section of this book that deals with the church. And so we'll be looking at that together. Also in our Sunday school class each week, they get a little sheet like this. It has review questions, and then it has questions with regard to uh, what we are studying. I have collected these every week and uh, plan to make a notebook out of them so they can have a notebook that will go with this book. Uh, so that's sort of a, a summary of what we've been doing in, in the class uh, downstairs when, when we're together. So we usually start out with a few review questions, and much to Jenica's chagrin, I've cut them back a little bit. I say that because she, she studies and she's ready to try to answer those questions. And so we go over some of them. And so just let me look at them writing here. That's a good sign. Apparently they've been listening and, and learning. So um, let's go over the review questions real quick, and then we will get into the lesson itself. Uh, one of the areas that we've talked about is temptation as we live the Christian life. And the review question is, God tests us in order to help us stand, whereas the devil tempts us in order to make us fall. All right? So God tests us in order to help us stand, and the devil tempts us in order to make us fall. And then we've also talked about bearing fruit. Living the Christian life includes bearing fruit or bearing. Uh, I give them one of the answers now. Uh, but in John 17, the Christian is to bear fruit and to bear witness, all right? They're to bear fruit and they're to bear witness, all right? Then we talked about a fruitless Christian, a Christian who bear, or a, a professing Christian who bears no fruit. And so this question is, a fruitless person is not a failed Christian, but a false Christian. One, a person who professes to be a Christian but doesn't bear fruit in his life is not a failed Christian but a false one. And then we talked about how in bearing fruit, God prunes us to help us bear more fruit. And the two things that God uses to prune the believer is his sovereign will, things he brings into our lives, all right, helps us to bear fruit. What's the other thing? His word. Very good, Jenica. His word. All right. Those are the two means by which he prunes the believer. And then we talked about the importance of the Bible in living the Christian life. So the question is, what is the Bible? The word of God. All right. God's word to man. We talked about how we're to approach the Bible. In James chapter 1, in verse 25, there were 
four steps in approaching the Bible. They were, I meditate, memorize, and master. The first one was to mark it, to look. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty. So we're to look or mark it, meditate upon it, memorize it, and master or do it. All right. Then we talked about prayer and the importance of prayer. How could we define prayer? Part, it, it, prayer is the means by which we have a relationship to God, yes. But, but what is prayer? Let me put it this way. If the Bible is God's word to man, then prayer is man's word to God. All right? Prayer is important in living the Christian life. We've talked about the Lord's Prayer. It's a great example to teach us how to pray. The apostles, the disciples could ask a question, they asked, teach us to pray. And the Lord gave them his prayer. And so there are three areas covered in the six petitions of the Lord's Prayer. What are they? I'm sorry? No, no. See, this is just last week. You've only got over it once. <laughs> Repetition brings about good things. First is this, that his glory might be seen. That his glory might be seen. Second, that his goodness might be shown. And thirdly, that his grace might be sent. His glory seen, his goodness shown, and his grace sent. And then we also talked about, does God answer prayer? Does God always answer prayer of the righteous man? And he does. He always answers. He doesn't necessarily answer the way that we have asked. He may say no, he may say wait, he may say yes, but he always answers prayer. Therefore, one of the things that Mr. Blanchard says is that when we pray, we need to learn that, this is your cue, delay is not denial. Very good. Just have to water the, I mean, prime the pump a little bit. Delay is not denial. All right. So that's our review questions. All right. Usually they have a few more, but for the sake of this class, we'll leave it there. So in looking at this book together, and by the way, I have several copies. If anybody wants any. Uh, I got one, two, three, four, five, or six copies. They're not well bound, so once you read it about twice or begin to read it, the binding will break. Um, I did not buy these. They were given to me. And so if you want a copy, it's a great little book. It's, a, it's an easy read, and it's a good little book with regard to giving it to a new Christian. It's about learning and living the Christian life. It's also a good little book for someone who perhaps is seeking. What does it mean to be a Christian? And what's a Christian life like? This is a, a good little book to have. And like I said, it's an easy read.
So we looked at learning the Christian life, and then the next section is living the Christian life. And as he, as he writes about living the Christian life, there are, are several areas that he would have us look at. First of all, there was the area of pleasing my father. Living the Christian life means I need to live to please my father. And under this section, he dealt with sanctification, sanctification, to be a holy people. He dealt with service. We are to serve. John 9, 4 tells us several things about our service to Christ, the necessity, the authority, the urgency of service. And then he talked about watchfulness, watchfulness. We need to continually be watchful for the coming of our Lord. So that's living, pleasing the Father. The next section he dealt with was fighting the enemy. And we talked about the devil and his work. The most extraordinary being in the whole world other than God is the devil. We talked about temptation. Temptation. So we talked about pleasing the Father, fighting the enemy. We talked about following the Savior. And under that, we, we mentioned fruit-bearing. And we mentioned witnessing. As a believer, living my life for Him, I need to be bearing fruit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. I need to be a witness. I need to be pointing men to Christ. I need to be doing that. And then we talked about doing our duty, doing my duty. And with that, we talked about the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit to aid us in doing what God has commanded us to do. And then we talked about the will of God, the will of God, obeying, uh, knowing what is right and wrong. God gave us a conscience. We talked about our conscience that, that tells us what is right and wrong. And even though we can dull the conscience, uh, we can't always rely upon the conscience, but we do have the Word of God that is to show us His will. And then finally, we came to the section of enjoying my fellowship. Living the Christian life is enjoying my fellowship, my relationship with God. And so we talk about three things here. We talked about the Bible, God's written Word, His final authority, teaches us how we ought to live this life how we ought to live it with confidence and, and how we ought to live it uh, in a way that is right and good and holy. We talked about prayer and the importance of prayer and looked at those six petitions of the Lord's Prayer given to us in His Word. So if we're going to enjoy our fellowship and relationship to God, then we've got to be in the Word. We need to be people of prayer. And there's one other area that He touches on. And that's the church. The church. The, the importance of the church in living the Christian life in this world. Mr. Blanchard points out that when you were born, you became a part of the human family. You didn't have a choice as to who was going to be your parents. You didn't have a choice as to who were going to be your siblings. But you just became a part of this family. And then he goes on to say... The same is true in the spiritual world. A person becomes a Christian when he's born again. That's what we talked about in the first part of the book. At the moment of his rebirth, he enters into God's spiritual family. 
He becomes a part of, and this is how Paul describes the church in Ephesians 2 and verse 9. That's a hint. It's on your sheet. Ephesians 2 and verse 9. Paul describes the church as God's household. This is the household of God. The question that might be asked is, how important is the church in my life? How important is the church in my life as I live as a Christian in this world? It is shockingly sad to see the number of professing Christians who, while in one hand they say they're committed to the church, they, they say they love the church, but yet it is not a significant part of their lives. It is, it is not all that important in their lives. And they'll be a part of the church so long as other things don't get in the way. It's not a priority for many. And that's a sad state of affairs with regard to the Christian culture. And so Mr. Blanchard begins this section by setting before us a few words that he says says it all. A few words that says it all. So when you hear the word church, what do people think of? When we talk about church, what do people think of? And, and now the class is open to everybody. All right. All right. A place, somewhere where you go to worship God. Is that what you're you're stating? That's true. That's what they think of. You know, hey, I'm going to go to church today. And by that they mean I'm going to that building there. All right, Lisa? A place to confess your sins. I, I suppose there is a religious sect that would hold to that with little booths in the back and they come in. All right. Anything else come to mind? The people. And that's, that's where we'll get to, right? Because that's the church. Good. Some people think uh, of the church being a clergy or an ecclesiastical hierarchy. You know, the church has pronounced this today, meaning those in the hierarchy of the organization have announced such and such. As Jenica said, they, they think of a building, a place. All right, others, go ahead. That, that, that's a good definition of the church. Yeah, good, good. Some people think when they say church, they mean worldwide religion. Everybody who, who has some religion must be a part of the church. Now, to help us define the church, because this term is used over a hundred times in the New Testament. And the equivalent in the Old Testament is used over 70 times. And in, in all that, it is never used to speak of a hierarchy. It is never used to speak of a structure 
or building. It is not used to speak of a worldwide religion. So what does it mean? And, and he gives us three words to help us. The church in the New Testament is ecclesia. Ecclesia. And that term means a gathering together of people. A gathering together of people. I think that's one of your questions. Right. Paul's, when he was preaching in Ephesus, caused quite a stir. And there was complaints that came up against him. And the town clerk told the people that any complaint against him would have to be dealt with in a legal ecclesia, a legal assembly. Acts chapter 19 and verse 39. You see, the word ecclesia is not necessarily a religious term or word, but often it was used to describe a democratic meeting of citizens and a, and a gathering together of citizens for some civic meeting to carry out some civil affair. And, and that's what the town clerk says here. If you've got a complaint against Paul, when we come together, when we assemble as a community, raise your complaints there. That's ecclesia. Now, the Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament is quahal, which comes from the root word meaning to summons. And sometimes is translated assembly. So it, it carries the same, it's, it's the gathering together. Judges, chapter 20 and verse 2. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 1. So it is the assembling together of people. Now, the third term that Mr. Blanchard points out is the term church. The term church, which is an English word, but it is derived from the Greek. Kyriakon, kyriakon. Kyrios is Lord. Kyriakon means belonging to the Lord. Belonging to the Lord. It simply means the Lord or the master of a property. So Mr. Blanchard goes on now to say, with these three things, we have a biblical meaning of the term. And here it is. The church is a gathering together of people called out by the Lord and belonging to Him. The church is a gathering together of people called out by the Lord belonging to him. That's Mr. Blanchard's definition of the church. 
So it is an assembly of people that belong to God. It is the gathering together of individuals that belong to God and to Him. That is His definition of a church. So with that in mind, any, any questions or comments with regard to His definition or how we got there? Yeah, Wayne? He didn't deal with the word synagogue. There's the question. I, I, yeah. Yes, he did. As was his practice, he went into the synagogue, the temple. Yeah. No. No. It is a... A, 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 I think a Greek derivative of kurios or that sort of thing. But no, it doesn't. But it's where we get the term church. It is. <laughs> yeah. We should call ourselves an assembly. <laughs> Any questions for my class? All right. Then Mr. Blanchard goes on, and he shows us the importance of the gathering together of God's people, this, this group of people that belong to God. He, he, he demonstrates the importance as he uses two metaphors. He, he points out two metaphors in the Bible that speaks of this assembly that gathers together. And the first one is that they're a living, they are living stones, a, a spiritual house. The Bible uses the metaphor of a building to describe the church. Look over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In verse 9. You got it, Alan? Read it loud. We are God's building. We are a people who have gathered together. And then in Ephesians, look over at Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 19 to 22. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. You got it, Jenica? Can you read it loudly? So then you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, in which you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being drawn together grows into the whole temple of the Lord, in whom you also All right, so here Paul says the church is a building, but it is a spiritual one, and the stones that are used are living stones held together. How? What holds it together? 
It is that of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone, and He's the one that holds the whole building together. Together. So, it is a spiritual household. It is a spiritual building held together by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second metaphor that he uses to describe the church in the Bible is that of the bride. The bride. Think about the significance of the bride. He's the bridegroom, and the church is described as his bride. We ought to love his bride. I, I speak of my wife often as my bride. It's a term of endearment. If someone speaks evil of my bride, that offends me. If, if someone ignores my bride, that offends me. She's my bride. And, and that's what Christ says of the church. While you're in Ephesians, then go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Verses uh, 25 and 26. Are you there? Tristan, want to read that for us? Alright. Husbands, love your wife. And may that reflect as you love your wife how Christ loved the church. It's a challenge to us as men. You know, does my love for my wife give a good demonstration of how Christ loved the church? If people were to watch me and how I love my wife, what do they learn about how Christ loves His church? That's a challenge. In the Old Testament, the relationship between God and His chosen people is also compared to a bride and a bridegroom in Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 5. So when Christ died on the cross, it was not in hopes that some vague spiritual good might come about for the whole of mankind. He did it in order to release the church from sin and purchasing her as his bride. As his bride. In Acts 20 and verse 28 speaks of the church of God. The, and, there, and there I believe the term would be the ecclesia, the assembling of God and his people. Which he purchased with his own blood. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, the church is Christ's chosen bride, the object of His particular love with the, an eternal future of glory better than any human can imagine. 
So this is his holy bride. It is we are a building that is joined together. We could say we're a household. We we could say that we're his bride. All these things points to significance of the church before God. So that's what Mr. Blanchard leads us to with regard to the metaphors used in the Bible comparing and describing his church. Then he goes on to speak about how many churches there are. How many churches are there? Were you pointing up? Were you saying what? Take your vote. Yeah. All right. There's only one church. Only one. And you may say, what? Did you not look on your way here and solve church building after church building after church building after church building? Yes, I did. And there are many denominations, and that's a whole different... Why are there so many denominations? And usually it's because people have a particular thing they want to emphasize, and so they become that denomination and and so forth. But at the end of the day, there is only one church. And while that may be a strange thing to say when we think of the hundred different denominations and grouping of Christians, it's a reality. There's only one true church. And Paul calls that in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, the church of the living God. It is the church of the living God. And that church consists of every true believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Past, present, and future. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ consists of every true believer, the past, present, and future. So there's one true church. We often speak of that church as the universal church. Or we speak of it as the invisible church. As the invisible church. And that brings us then to that whole terminology of the visible church and the invisible church. Or what we might say, the local church and the universal church. The universal visible church is the sum of total of all Christians throughout the ages. That's the universal, the invisible church. The local church, the, the assembling of God's people in one location to, as Al mentioned, worship Him, is the local church or the visible church. The visible church. And we, when we make those distinctions, in, in the visible church, the local church, they're, they're to recognize church officers. In, in the local church, in, in the visible church, they're to engage in partaking of the sacraments. In the visible church, the local church, there's the exercise of church discipline. Let me say this. In the local church and the visible church, it is not a perfect church. It is not a perfect church. And when it comes to the universal church, the invisible church, every believer, past, present, and future... That's a perfect church. 
Only genuine Christians are a part of that church. And we make that distinction. And therefore, Mr. Blanchard goes on to say this. He has two statements he makes with regard to the invisible and visible church. The first one is this. Not all members of the visible church are members of the invisible church. Do you get that? Not all members of the visible church are members of the invisible church. There are some who are part of the local visible church who may not be or are not truly believers. In Acts chapter 8, verses 20 to 23, we have this Sumerian magician named Simon. Simon was baptized. He identifies himself with the local church. But when he offered, but when he offered to buy his way into a position of spiritual power, here's what Peter said. May your money perish with you because you thought to buy the gift of God with money. Your heart is not right before God. You are full of bitterness and a captive to sin. You are filled with bitterness and a captive for sin. Here's a man that gave the appearance and yet not truly a believer. I believe it. Isn't it First John that talks about those who were among us that then went out from us because they were never really a part of us? We see that over and over again. We are not infallible when it comes to bringing folks into the membership of the church. There can be those who come among us, give what looks to be a very credible profession of faith. They seem to be hungering for the things of God. They want to commit themselves to this local assembly. But by and by, it is demonstrated that they are not genuine believers. And so while there may be some who are part of the visible church, they may not be part of the invisible church. The Lord taught that very reality in the parable of the wheats and the tares. Remember that parable? Plant the wheats, might throw some tares in there among them, they start growing together. And, and, and somebody, what do we do? Do we go in and try to pluck them out? No, let them grow. When it comes harvest time, it will be revealed. All right? now, now, we don't want to bring anyone into the church, the visible church, the local church, who we don't believe is truly a genuine Christian, who, who, who has demonstrated by the fruit in their lives that they are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But with what help God gives us, it doesn't mean that we won't bring someone in by and by who demonstrates not to be a believer or who may go out their whole life. Remember last Sunday afternoon we talked about the man who thinks himself to be religious. 
He's not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is a man who knows he's, he doesn't know God, even though he pretends he knows God. That's a hypocrite. Here's a man who deceives his own heart that he thinks himself to be a Christian, and, and he's not. And, and that may happen. And, and on that great day of judgment, all will be revealed. All will be known. And so, not all members of the invisible church are members, or the visible church are members of the invisible church. Here's the other thing he says. Not all members of the invisible church are members of the visible church. Not all members of the invisible church are members of the visible church. And I think, let me double check here. I think he says something about, and that's a sad statement. That's a sad statement. Um, yes, this is sadly, but obviously true, as it was written even in the early days of the Christian church. No, that's, that's the other one. Okay, this is... Not all members of the invisible church are members of the visible church. He says this is equally true and equally sad. Some Christians, and especially some young people, have become so impatient with what they consider to be the failure of the visible church that they have opted out of it altogether. I'm just going to go it alone. I don't need to be a part of a church. I don't need to commit myself to like-minded Christians. So there's no structure in their life. There's no discipline in their lives. There's no fellowship in their lives like there needs to be. They've opted out. So a person who, and sometimes they're very arrogant about it. I don't need the church. The church has failed me. The church has done this and done that. A pastor friend of mine this past week, he, he warned some of us, there's this guy going around, he said he visited our church, he, he sat in our church, and, and then he walked out, and somebody walked out with him, they didn't know what was going on, and, and the guy, you know, I'm so fed up with church, and your church is just like all the others, and, and caused a ruckus. You know? I don't need the church. So he's just out there being an individual. I, another pastor was sharing with me a, uh, of, a, of, a, of a family who has visited their church and, and has caused somewhat of a ruckus. And another pastor says, oh yeah, they were in our church not too long ago and they were doing the same thing. And uh, I think the only church that will make them happy is the church with their name on the front and with him as their teacher. And so, you know, they've left that church. I, I know at least three They visited this church. <laughs> I know of three other churches. Now, they didn't cause a ruckus, thankfully, when they were here. But, but they, they, they just can't settle in. They can't commit. They can't humble themselves and, and be taught. And so, it, but it is important that we commit ourselves to a local assembly. And I couldn't find it this morning. Wayne Mack, Wayne Mack wrote a book about the church. And he takes a different position than Mr. Blanchard. If 
I recall correctly, uh, Wayne Mack says, if, if, if you profess to be a Christian and yet ignore the church, I question whether or not you're a Christian. I mean, he was pretty... Where Mr. Blanchard seemed to think, well, there, there are those who are Christians who aren't a part of a church. So it's different ideas. Another book I'd recommend is Donald Whitney's book on spiritual disciplines within the, Christ, within the church. And he has a chapter on joining the church, right? joining the church, and, and why that's important. Why join a church? And he gives several reasons as to, to why you should join a church. In our confession, uh, in our constitution, we have a section dealing with the warrant for church membership. If you, if you haven't read that in a while, it might be good to read that to remind yourselves of the importance of being committed to a local church. And then what we expect from members might be a good little section to read again. Uh, it's amazing to me how many people have read this, agreed to it, and then sort of gotten lazy with regard to doing it. Um, but there that is. So... We have uh, that way. Well, my time's about up. Before it, the next thing we we're going to we're going to get into was the New Testament way, and what are the identifying marks of a church. So, with my class, we'll we'll begin that next week. So, put your names on the sheets, and I'll bring them back for next week. And so, we'll probably cover them fairly quickly, and then we'll my class will review a few things as we bring this study to a close. But I've got a couple of minutes, so is there any questions or comments? That, yeah, Rachel? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, that, that is a challenge, isn't it, for some people? Um, together, together may mean their life. And what do you do? I mean, it's, it's not like you can move to a different state. It's, that's their country. And, and that brings challenges. And it would be interesting to talk to some of them to see how they, how they reconcile or how they come together, maybe families or something like that. But you know, there is that aspect. Yeah. Yes. Huh. Interesting question. Uh, <laughs> well, it, could it be something like Rachel would just mention? I mean, that would be a challenge. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're saying that this example is an exception, perhaps, to what ought to be the rule for every believer. But. 
Okay. All right. I understand that. And I would agree with that. Examples? Huh. The only thing he... He does... What's what Mr. Blanchard says? The Christian who does not identify with a local church is failing to follow the example of Jesus who on the Sabbath day went to the synagogue as was his custom, Luke 4 and verse 16. And then he also... He is ignoring the later practice of the disciples who met together on the first day of the week... Acts 20 and verse 7. Then he also mentions the passage, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10.25. Those are the passages he mentions here. So he tells you, you ought to be in church, but he doesn't give you examples of those who are Christians who weren't in church. Young people, you have no excuse. <laughs> None. All right. Mr. Mack and Mr. Modtry. All right. Yeah. Good. All right. Um, I'm not sure what next week holds. Uh, I know Mr. Pickens won't be here. I'm not sure what Dr. White's plans are. So um, I may be back up here. I may not. We can finish it together. All right. Anything else? My time is up. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do give you thanks for the church. We thank you for the local assembly of God's people who desire to worship you and give you praise. We would ask, Father, that we would be a people who are committed to love one another, to help one another. Father, that we would be a people who delight in gathering to worship you. And so, Father, we ask that as we now come to worship you, that you would come by the work of your Spirit and meet with us. Draw near to us, we pray, as we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed. If you want a book, I'll take your book.